Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. A name means nothing on the battlefield, but mine is Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Ryan, also known as Cosmos. Today's episode is Prisoners of Death the final part of our coverage of 1998's Metal Gear Solid. This week, we will discuss the big picture themes of this game, or at least how we take to mean them. But first, spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. So... Big part of why I love Metal Gear so much is that it's a thematically rich game and series. It's something, it has something to say and stuff that I feel are good things to say. Like it says positive things about uh, anti war, anti imperialism. It talks about nukes uh, in a way that's almost kind of forgotten now. Like the anti nuclear push was a big when I was much younger, but now you don't really hear that discussion anymore, except when, you know, we want to go to war with Iran. And like when we talk about Metal Gear being cinematic, it's not just that, you know, it has cutscenes and voice acting, but it's shot with a camera and it's uh, told in a way that it has a specific point of view and it uses its combination sight, sound, uh, you know, to speak to the themes and what it's trying to say underneath the hyper-militaristic action movie-style aesthetic. And, you know, we'll talk about what it means for something to have something to say a lot with Metal Gear Solid 2, so I'll put a pin in that for now. (laughs) And it's also possible that I'm just, you know, an obsessed person that's just out of my mind when I, you know, think about games and think about this game uh, series in particular. So uh, before we dive in, uh, how do you, what do you feel about Metal Gear and its general messaging and thematic thrusts uh, over the years? See, over the years is an interesting question because I feel like in one, it's very tight. There's not a whole lot of different things. I mean, there's there's obviously kernels of stuff. Like this idea that that you can break any ever break down one piece of art into like this is the one message. If you, if you can do that, it's a bad piece of art. And you know everything is every creator puts things they you know even subconsciously. David Lynch always talks about that. We'll put in references to things that they like. But like, I still think Metal Gear One, Metal Gear Solid One is relatively smaller in scope. Like it's just kind of about the this eight or nine things it's really about. But over I think over the course of the series it gets a little more and more it gets broader and broader and tries to be about more and more and I think it's harder to really nail that down uh, not with 2, I mean 2 is about a million things but somehow it all makes sense and somehow it doesn't make sense it's it's a post sense game it's, it's, it's not concerned with <laughs> making sense but yeah I, I think, I mean obviously Kojima does have I, I, like we've talked about this I think the one thing you can you can definitely pin him down on is just anti anti war and specifically pro nuclear disarmament is like I would say the the core if there's one core it's political or, or artistic point it's that but yeah I mean it, it kind of goes back and forth like he's it's it, in that way more than the other it reflects it's its primary creator like that's sort of his whims 
like like Yoko Kano is is another guy who gets compared to him, and I think Yoko Kano has a much better like he himself knows what he was talking about better than, Ko- than Kojima does. So I don't know. That's kind of a tricky question. Like yeah. it, as a serious broad thing, it's hard to really pin down because I don't think he ever quite knows what he's exactly what he wants to say. But that I think that makes it easier. It's not as not didactic really. It's not beating over the head with one message all the time. And if it ever does, it's a very important message. Like I said, like nuclear disarmament is still, despite all the other apocalypses we're dealing with, still one of the core issues of our time. Like it still should be, it's it's still the quickest and easiest way to, to complete destruction of the human race that exists. Right. And it's just sort of. This podcast can end like right now because of a nuclear war and that would be the end of humanity. Yeah. Uh, Climate change has a couple of years. No, I mean it would be it would basically be the end. Like it would, it would it kind of cut the lifeline. There'd be not there'd be no way back from that. So yeah, that would be great. This at this point we might welcome it. I don't know. I I welcome the heat death. What's the what's the doomsday clock at? What, what's it still at? Is it still like five minutes? It's. I think so. Yes. Um, even though we're kind of, and I think that'll you know really get into the themes of the game is really being past that initial Cold War nuclear scare. But uh, one of the unique things we get to do since we're kind of you know spoilers are you know all on the table is that we'll be able to talk a little bit to themes that are more prominent or more centered in later games. Like as we discuss Metal Gear Solid One, we're going to mention probably memes and phantoms and the times and things that Kojima plays with, you know either. Better or worse, you know, that's up to the player's opinion. But uh, we get to, you know, be able to see the themes of later games reflect back at this game and the seeds that were there. Similar to how we talked about how Big Boss, when I played this game in 1998, was a complete non-entity. But now when I go through Metal Gear Solid 1, the shadow of Big Boss hangs over this entire narrative. And every time someone mentions him, that like strikes a new nerve for me. So uh, that's one of the nice parts about doing this podcast and taking a holistic approach to the canon is uh, we get to have a little fun with it that way. So um, let's just, you know, get right into it. And I think the first big theme is uh, militarization and, you know, the anti-nuclear, anti-imperial and pacifist themes we've kind of talked about already. But I want to take a step back here and kind of break the you know, story down into its simplest elements and just start with the setting because the story is set in Alaska. And just by placing the story there and the themes that Kojima is wants to play within the game generally, he's able to evoke, you know, certain historical events or a certain history. Like some things that come to mind when I think of Alaska is uh, Seward's Folly. That was the purchase of Alaska from Russia. Um, that purchase was steeped in uh, imperialist, uh, like, you know, strategy. Uh, Russia did not want Britain to get, you know, gain naval supremacy in the Pacific theater. So they sold it to America, you know, in the you know mid 1800s when America wasn't the empire it is today, thinking that that would be the best way to stave off the British empire in the Pacific. So, uh, you know, they thought they were getting a good deal by selling this useless chunk of land to America. Uh, Seward was considered an idiot for buying it, but this was before we knew there would be petroleum and gold there. And then obviously Alaska would go on to be a major uh, U.S. military location. Uh, You know, the Air Force, um, I'm pretty sure every branch of government has uh, significant stationing out in Alaska, which would also be part of 
that, you know, kind of deterrence and military strategy that would play into World War II with Japan and then also uh, the USSR during uh, the Cold War. And then, of course, to go along with all that is that Alaska, like almost like all of America, was inhabited by uh, indigenous people and native tribes and the people who they don't think of land as belonging to people, but they were here first. And, you know, America came in and genocided and, uh, you know, trial of or trail of tears them all into, you know, near extinction. It's really horrible what it did. And just by setting the story in Alaska already, we have imperialism, colonialism and all that stuff kind of centered. So, you know, that's just the beginning. And Alaska was in the news around the time Kojima's thinking about uh, these games because there was that big Exxon Valdez oil spill uh, in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be a big part of our Metal Gear Solid 2 discussion. Uh, but when you start thinking about American imperialism um, and its military state, that can't be separated from the discussion of oil and the petrodollar and how, you know, U.S. policy basically revolves around oil. It always has, and it probably always will until the heat death of this planet and every other planet that we know. Yeah. And then on a, just a smaller scale, you're, the setting is a military base. It's a military base, and you're fighting U.S. soldiers, more or less. And, you know, that's not a mistake. Just like, you know, the bad guy in T2 being a cop is not a mistake. It's very deliberate. And I think, uh, you know, Coach, you know, I think you pulled this quote that uh, the 20th century is like the considered the American century. The American century, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's something Kojima actively wants to reject, but I think. I mean, yeah, I would say so because it – or just the idea that, that – that I mean, maybe he accepts that the 20th century is the American century, but the idea of that continuing into the future is something I think is is rejected pretty wholly by the series. Like, I would say the most consistent – I mean – ignoring the Patriots, like I would say the most consistently antagonistic force in the game is the American military. Like it's always some sort of rogue experiment or some sort of, I mean, not even a rogue experiment. It's always some, it's always the American the presence of the American military, the, the actions of the American military that kind of set up, if not the direct conflicts of every game, then sort of the background, the, like the stuff that's happened before in those locations. Yeah. I'm thinking specifically of Peace Walker, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, that that's a that's a running that's a running theme in the game. That's it's really hard to ignore, honestly. Yeah, and I'd I'd say the Patriots are just another layer of that because the Patriots is all about taking this kind of international cabal of power brokers and then making it uniquely American uh, during and after the Cold War. Yeah, and uh, the quote I was referring to, I was able to get it here, is Kojima saying, "I think this was in the lead up to uh, Metal Gear Solid Five: The Phantom Pain." Uh, he said, in the past, the U.S. was the center of the world where everything was happening. I think my stories have always sought to question this, maybe even criticize it. But the situation is changing. America is not seen as the center of the world anymore. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And, you know, we talk about America and imperialism, but I think Kojima also, in terms of his general you know, anti-war messaging is evoking that the entire world is at war. And while America may be involved in nearly all of it, there is other stuff going on. Uh, There's like the Kurdish war that Sniper Wolf refers to. And actually, that's kind of the result of US and UK policy in terms of how they kind of just drew arbitrary lines through the Middle East and, you know, took a 
people like the Kurdish people who are not not necessarily nomadic, but they don't they're not as settled down, especially in the climate and conditions of, you know, that kind of Iraq uh, area. So like, you know, drawing some hard lines and then putting them some under the control of someone like Saddam Hussein, uh, you know, that really changes, um, you know, what's going on locally. And then we also have Gray Fox, who was a veteran of the Rhodesian War, I believe. Um, and I think the Rhodesian War is actually the colonial side of it, because I'm pretty sure that's the liberation war for Zimbabwe, uh, because I don't think Rhodesia exists anymore, as we know it. So um, I think, you know, uh, the American military and America is truly involved in almost every military action in the world in some capacity. But um, I think he does zoom out that there's a lot more going on and everywhere is at war and, you know, everywhere is kind of on fire, not just the places we explicitly are fighting in. I did want to say, I, I forgot that I wrote this down, that uh, going back to that U.S. thing real quick, it is interesting that I think the most explicitly villainous character in in MGS1 is is the acting Secretary of Defense, <laughs> Jim Houseman. Like, he's the only character, I mean, he's not in the game very much, but he's like just, like, everyone hates him. He's actively evil. He's actively trying to kill every other character, basically. And I think that's, I, like, it's sort of the inverse of the Black Panther thing, where I really was disconcerted by them. Not not even them having like an American secret, like a, a American spy be like a heroic character. It's that they like, they couldn't just make him like a shield agent. Like he had to be explicitly the CIA. And like, you're, I'm supposed right. to believe that it's like the opposite of that where like, he could have just been like a nondescript military functionary, but no, he's explicitly named dropped as the secretary of defense of the United States. Yeah. Which I think is that's a that's a really interesting way to do that, and that's sort of like counter programming a lot of the a lot of the uh, high level CIA propaganda that we still see today. Yeah, no, um, I'm actually going to just jump a little bit ahead here because uh, they, you know, straight up name, you know, the Secretary of Defense. They also just straight up talk about DARPA, um, which is the. Uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is an actual agency that exists in our real world. And they're basically the Department of Defense's mad science division. And I don't want to say that in a way that seems to marginalize them or say they're like that Wayne Tech uh, R&D department that Lucius Fox worked for. That was kind of just, you know, go be happy in your corner somewhere. It's a legitimate juggernaut of the U.S. budget. They have like over three and a half billion annual budget. So like... We are sinking a lot of money into this agency to come up with new ways to uh, kill people, uh, to imitate life, because there's a lot of AI and robotics, and I'm sure all of that will go to killing people for the most part. Uh, So the fact that they actually go into DARPA and name it uh, just is kind of mind-blowing. Even when I played this this game in uh, 06, I think I said, maybe it was 07, I wouldn't say I was like super familiar, but replaying it a few years ago, I was like, wait, this is really like, I don't know, you just kind of get overwhelmed with acronyms in that game, but it's like me in my late 20s is like, I know what DARPA is. Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not some generic, like, like arms tech is kind of a generic, like fake uh, arms company, but like DARPA is real. And like, he could have just said it could have been some fake, you know, I'm sure if it was an American game, they may have asked him to like somebody may have gotten in contact with them with them and and asked them to make it like some generic, just like or or even like the famous like the black you know the black project like it's like um 
or even like Majestic Twelve or some some like fanciful, non like a completely unrealistic group, and not DARPA, <laughs> which is real. If you say it in a way that it sounds like a proper noun, basically you could say anything. You could say like the words they use in like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, like control yeah, yeah. or something like that. Um, and, you know, just to give a little history of DARPA be- to kind of give some gravity to why it's such a big deal that it's mentioned that um, DARPA, like its predecessor was ARPA, which is just missing the defense in front of it, which speaks a whole lot. And it was established in 1959 by uh, President Eisenhower. And the whole program kind of came out of uh, a a response to Sputnik uh, because, you know, the USSR beat us to space. And because it was just a big dick measuring contest, uh, we needed to start investing more and more. And, you know, Eisenhower is noted for being the one that gave the speech about warning about the military industrial complex, but uh, he might have been the one that kind of really kicked it into high gear with this uh, program. And I think uh, this is also an acknowledgement of the technology that kind of precedes the PlayStation and us podcasting, uh, because ARPANET uh, was one of the very first versions of being online. Uh, it went online appropriately in 1969. Nice. DARPA is is one of the entities like most usually credited for really developing a lot of the early internet in the, in the early 90s also. Like, I know the, the joke is Al Gore was like single-handedly created the internet, but like DARPA is probably more responsible for any singular other entity in world history, which is also, you know, that's another one of their crimes. Now, some of you might want to think that's good that, you know, DARPA exists to invent the internet for us. You know, I'm a little more mixed on that, but they also have some things like they invented Agent Orange, that horrible chemical weapon that, you know, splashed on the big stage in Vietnam. Uh, Under Reagan, they worked heavily on missile defense systems, uh, you know, all sorts of military funding under uh, the Reagan administration. Uh, They did robotics and prosthetics. Uh, prosthetics will be a big part of the Metal Gear Solid franchise, starting with Gray Fox here and then going all the way through to the Phantom Pain, which is almost about <laughs> phantom limbs and pros- prosthetics. And then, you know, kind of a lot of the horrors today with stealth aircraft and drones. Uh, that's, you know, all DARPA stuff too. And it's not just the drones in the Middle East and all that, but drones at the U.S. border monitoring uh, refugees and, you know, anyone that's trying to escape persecution or uh, terrible material conditions. Uh, we're basically deploying a Department of D- Defense, like high-tech um, hardware uh, to keep, you know, poor people out of this country. So, you know, just by having DARPA named and be a key part of the story, just like the Secretary of Defense, like you said, uh, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. I, I also want to throw in that um, I would say the vast majority of like the things that the police beat us with, especially most of the non-lethal stuff they've been using, is all, like more often than not tied directly to DARPA. Like that's that's military surplus. It's a lot of stuff that's been like deemed not suitable for widespread military use it's just re- retrofitted for police use and and then like explicitly they you know the police get a lot of uh hand-me-down like apcs that are you know the enormous military surplus we have in this country that we have enough military we have enough like just material to fight like 25 wars simultaneously so you know at a certain point they just they're going to give it to podunk north dakota's police department so they can have a you know a, a 3.5 million dollar apc to go run over some jaywalkers with or whatever they do like it's just 
yeah, it, it, DARPA is the, the the bleeding edge of military technology in this country. As my cat tries to knock me over, and like, yeah, it's it's, it's it feels important to me that they are explicitly referenced in this game as like a real world purveyor of evil. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I live in Chicago, and our mayor. Uh, it just came out that two hundred and eighty million dollars yeah. that was supposed to be allocated to COVID relief went to the police. Uh, so, like. All this funding, all this equipment, uh, it's basically the stuff that's supposed to be defending us at the you know edges of our empire, which is its own fraught, immoral thing, is now being you know brought back home and used against its own populace. Which what is police brutality and, and what is what is totalitarianism other than fascism turned inward? Yep, that's that's just all so great. Both the times we live in and you know the world that Kojima's. <laughs> depicting in his game these, un- these unprecedented times yes oh these unprecedented times like every commercial will remind you i just wish that these times were precedented i feel, I feel better <laughs> you know we talked a little bit about uh the soldier as a pitiable figure or pawn in all this and a lot of that's you know with solid snake being a pawn in all this but i mean you're confronted with the fact that you kill all these soldiers you know you're all just meat for the, you know, the DARPAs and the arms techs and that secretary of defenses. There's like the system is purposely weighted against a soldier, even though all the media you see valorizes it. The video games, the army ads are just absolutely absurd. The way they make you think you're like fighting a dragon with Excalibur or something. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're in a Marines outfit. Uh, you know, this the way this country uses, especially its poor people, to just be fodder, you know, cannon fodder, that's literally the term for it. Um, and I think some of that pitiability, and you're supposed to feel bad about the people you killed, I think that's a part of the game design here with Liquid Snake confronting you with, you enjoyed all the killing. Um, that's, you know, at Solid Snake, but also at you, um, you know, in terms of the games you play and this game specifically, uh, you know. I, I think that's a key part of why, you know, I a big fan of the themes of the game is that um, they kind of take the gameplay and make them a big, you know, a part of that as opposed to there's the game part and there's the story other part that's just kind of on its own track. Yeah. And that stuff, I think it's interesting. I, I actually meant to write this down. I, I just remembered it. Um, I think it's interesting that that stuff kind of starts ramping up in this series as like traditional military military shooters become more prevalent because in 98 they i mean they didn't really exist they you would get some world war ii games and stuff but it wasn't like a big industry and then by 2004 you're literally being confronted by everyone you've killed in the sorrow fight and that i mean that's about when call of duty was starting to become large you started seeing i don't know if battlefield is really big then you started seeing like like medal of honor was going then and then by like especially by five like by in v there's a lot there's a lot of, I mean, that's what the Fulton system is for. It's like explicitly to avoid that. It, it's incentivizing not doing that. In my 2015, you know, that's that's a that industry alone was about as big as like the rest of the mainstream games industry combined. So, I think that's an interesting thing to track. You're basically at like annual Call of Duties. It's basically a Madden thing at this point. Uh, which is, you know, pretty ridiculous. And Call of Duty is just one aspect of it. There's so many games uh, that I just see ads for. I mean, they kind of just go over my head because that stuff generally doesn't interest me. But I feel like there's five or seven titles at least that, you know, we could probably name right here. I I played Modern Warfare 2 was the last one I was like into at all. And it's not a bad game. Like it's kind of it's kind of like 
those games get to like that almost that Tom Clancy level of like like silliness, so that they're not really offensive to me. But like at this point, we're at like Call of Duty Cold War coming out, and you like go you take orders from Ronald Reagan. It's like all right, cool. I'm not like I have no interest in that whatsoever. Yeah, I'm not. And we had that we had that uh Battlefield One game that was just a World War One game that would be like you've unlocked mustard gas and it's like I'm good I'm good there man it's I mean one of the reasons the only shooters I like I really have really like attached to are like Half Life Doom and and Halo those games are all fanciful I mean half you fight soldiers in Half Life but they're I don't think anyone would would be like wow this is so realistic <laughs> it's a Stephen King game basically. Yeah, my touch base for that would honestly be Goldeneye, which precedes that. And to me, James Bond is a fantasy in the same way that like I don't consider that to be the hyper realism that Metal Gear Solid or Call of Duty in their own different ways are trying to achieve. Yeah, the only time the Bond series has ever come close to like really breaching real world spy stuff is from Russia with Love. And that's a terrific movie. But that movie is also still like pretty fanciful. Yeah. And, And good. It's a great movie. Yeah, it, it's not. That's not something I think is that. I don't think, like, I don't think Ian Fleming was interested in doing real spy stuff because he. I mean, he did do that, but I don't think he was interested in writing about that because it was probably it's mostly boring. It's mostly like what the Americans is, which I'm not saying the Americans is boring, but like the stuff they do in the Americans is spy stuff. That's not. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no, there's no James Bond does not exist, and but you know. uh Special Forces soldier in Iraq in 2005 does exist, and Call of Duty loves doing that guy. We love him. Oh, they love him. The ultimate soldier. <laughs> there are other aspects of the gameplay that kind of feed into this, because uh, you're incentivized. Like, it's a much easier to get through most of these maps if you don't trigger any alerts, if you just sneak past people instead of trying to kill them or take them all out. Uh, the mechanics, like the actual shooting mechanics aren't great. You can't just really go into a map and obliterate people. Uh, you, it's just not, it's not very user-friendly in that way. And then also you'll be overwhelmed by alerts. As Sam made, made sure to mention, that's what makes the parts where you have to do that kind of tedious. Like it's it's not great. It's much, it's much more well done in two but that also opens up the. Uh, I think that the. I mean, I'll probably mention this. Three is the most well balanced because you can do that stuff in three, but you don't have to. Whereas by the time five comes along, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it. I'm sure most people got into a pretty good rhythm of just tranking guards and just leaving. Like it becomes like it became like a, such a rote behavior in that game that that the, it's. I'm not saying it hurts the game, but if if you play that game. It allows you to play that game very lazily. It allows you to just breeze through a lot of it if you want. And I think that that's sort of on the other side of the bubble, like the, the bell curve there. Yeah. One is the, the far end where it's, it's just like it's too hard to do that stuff. It's not enjoyable. And I'm not entirely sure that that was, that was a deliberate statement. It's not like... Right. No, I agree. Not, not like Eco or Shadow of the Colossus where like the bad controls, the, the poor controls are, are supposed to be they're supposed to tell you that the character you're playing is not like an action hero. Like he doesn't know what he's doing. He's awkward. He's an awkward child who's struggling to, to make his way through these horrible situations. Whereas like MGS one, I just don't think, I think the the tech wasn't there for them to get like super fluid movement all the time. And the shooting's not great. And that's why I think, yeah, three is sort of the, the sweet spot for that for me. Cause it's the most fun. I think we'll, I think we both agree with that. Yeah, we definitely do. And like you were saying how Shadow of Colossus, you're awkward and not really cut out for this. You're Solid Snake. You should be like, yeah. you know, a good marksman, uh, quick on the draw. And I mean, 
by beating the bosses and stuff, you live up to that Legend of Solid Snake in a way, but like the actual mechanics aren't that great. Yeah, three guys can take you three guys can take you out pretty easily in, in this game. Yeah. And uh that's what they do. It's like if you trigger an alert, the guards swarm you. It's made so if that happens, you have to run. You're not really you know, you when you get near the end of the game, maybe you can OP them with, you know, some of your weapons, but it's still just easier to run and hide even when that happens. And that'll be something to, that'll be fun to track through the games because the enemy AI definitely takes leaps forwards. And I think especially from one to two uh, takes a huge leap forward where they start working in teams, uh, start communicating over the radio that'll basically follow through through the rest of the series. Uh, kind of moving on from the gameplay, uh, we've talked about just broad military messaging, but we've both agreed many times that at the core of his anti-military, anti-pacifist messaging is nukes and anti-nuclear messaging. Uh, and that makes sense. Uh, Kojima is a citizen of the only country that was, you know, actively nuked. Uh, and you'll see that with a lot of, uh, you know, Japanese art post-war, uh, even now, but, you know, whether it's uh, Miyazaki or the Godzilla movies, or uh, Shuri Hondo, like, like anime yeah. in general was, and manga especially, was like a kind of a cultural response to that void. And yeah, it's like, I don't, Astro Boy is, is, is considered like almost anti-nuke, but I, I, I definitely think, especially with people of his generation, because he's technically a boomer, right? He would be. He was born in uh, like the sixties. So yeah, that's correct. I mean, that's a that's a big, and that's something I don't even feel that like qualified to talk about. But I know just from like secondhand that, in the same way that a lot of the Cold War like stuff hung over this country, just the specter of Hiroshima and Nagasaki hung over that entire generation. That's not something you. It's not something that you could ignore or not understand. Like that's a part of their direct recent cultural history in Japan in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. And uh and even and after you know the bombs were actually dropped, uh nuclear bombs basically drove policy. It drove the Cold War. It drove a lot of relations between things like India and Pakistan. Uh, you know, we're always worried about rogue states uh obtaining nuclear bombs. And the the world, you know, was supposedly, you know, in the 70s and 80s and, you know, further on, was supposedly moving towards disarmament. Uh, but that was never really the case. You know, the uh Peace Walker is actually set during the SALT II conversations, uh, which were uh, you know, part of the kind of nuclear de-escalation talks that were supposedly happen happening in the 70s. Uh Metal Gear Solid, this game, uh, I think they have some event called the start convention that the president was supposed to be at and that's supposed to be about nukes mm -hmm. so uh like the idea is that we're always talking about like oh we need to be disarming and stuff but it never really was happening and i actually pulled the block of text that flashes at the end of the game uh after you beat the game and everything is done before the credits roll it just says on a white text on a black screen over 60,000 nukes in existence were in existence in the 1980s, and that despite treaties promising the disarmament of a large portion of these weapons. As of 1998, there are still 26,000 nuclear warheads in the world. And those nuclear warheads are tied to American supremacy. Uh, you know, they are one in the same, just like we we're talking about how oil and American imperialism go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. uh, nukes are a language so to speak one that uh skullface will talk about uh you know to a fake guy <laughs> yeah yeah um 
I, there's also, you know, there's a terrible irony of the only country that's ever used nuclear arms against another country is somehow the one who gets to decide who gets to have them. Yeah. Like that, that makes sense, right? That's a, that's how thing that's how the world should work. We all agree. Yeah. I, I hate to keep bringing up fucking Marvel here, but it just <laughs> reminds me of that Tony Stark line about the best one is the only, the one you have to only fire once. Uh, basically America dropped the bomb and that basically put them in the driver's seat for at least the following, I think we're at 80 years or so now. Uh, but you know, like Kojima has been saying, may that might not be the case going forward, so to speak. And I remember growing up and I'm, you know, a little bit older than you, uh, like mid nineties, early nineties, late eighties, even like the nuclear discourse was still kind of there in pop culture in terms of we'd have movies like, uh, broken arrow, and uh, under siege, you know, seizing nuclear bombs. This was especially popular after uh, the Soviet Union, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, dissolved and what muff or uh, materials unaccounted for. That's an acronym this game drops. Basically, you know, nuclear material that was, you know, created or I, I'm not a nuclear scientist. I don't know the right words for this. Uh, but then, you know, as you know, the USSR fell apart and it's, you know, satellite states. Uh, they lost accounting of where all these nuclear materials wound up. Were they properly disposed of? Uh, are they being properly disposed of now? So that all that stuff was really big in the 90s. And it kind of felt like... Gosian got one in Under Siege 2, as we all remember. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like that was just such a huge part. Like that would be your rote, uh, you know, kind of tear you know, enemy bad guy action plot of a, any movie. And then, you know, we got into 9-11 and then that would just move into like, you know, terrorists and brown people uh, seizing an aircraft or seizing an airport or a building, uh, obviously playing on 9-11 and all that. But occasionally, you know, beyond that, and I think uh, there's a couple TV examples like 24 uh, and they talk about dirty bombs and stuff. But it was always terrorists who got dirty bombs. But that was kind of like, I think that was kind of a melding of those two tropes and then they just kind of ran with terrorism after that. Like, 24 is the ultimate post-9-11 piece of American culture, I feel like. Like, the immediacy, if you want to know how people, like, the absolute just rage and paranoia people were feeling, it, you can find it in 24. And it's not a... I don't think it was, like, a terrible show. I think it was, like, the concept was kind of interesting. But yeah, like, looking back on that show, anytime after, like, 2007 or 2008, it's just like, oh, wow. This is... Why is this, like, absolute furious show like everyone in it was just furious all the time and i think that was sort of the i mean it's it's a fairly conservative show and i think that was just kind of the but i don't even want to say it was conservative because we all remember wolf blitzer on cnn like saluting the flag and reciting the declaration reciting the uh what is it fucking pledge of allegiance while watching baghdad get bombed in 2003 like that happened we it's a it's a weird thing and we, we still live in a country where all the people who made all the decisions about the Iraq war are still in power and all the pundits who called for it still get to have their cushy Washington Post jobs. It's just, it it's an insane culture that we live in. And, and I feel like, I, I, I don't know if it's deliberate or if it's just that we just kind of stopped paying attention to nukes because they, were, they weren't as important as, as making sure we got all the brown people. In the in the mid two thousands, I don't know. You were older than me, so you would have a better recollection of that. But like culturally, I feel like that it's a really weird shift, and it's one of the things I really took to with when Metal Gear came out. When I first played Metal Gear Solid Three, was that that was such a, a thing, and I was like, yeah, that's right. Nukes, 
nukes are still around, huh? And it's like, yeah, that really, that pulled me in. That was one of the little political bits that I think, because I said I played that game when I was 17. I played Metal Gear Solid 3, and I feel like that's about the age where you start to have, like, identifiable politics. Yeah. Late high school, early college, I feel like you start to have some idea of what you believe politically, unless you're a debate mm-hmm. club nerd, and then in which case you're just, you don't believe in anything. <laughs> Um, And I was right at, um, I was a senior in high school when uh, 9-11 happened. And I trust me, I noticed when all the bad guys in my favorite action movies went from Eastern European white guys uh, to brown guys with beards and uh, people who looked more like me, it was hard to miss that shift in pop culture. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, So, yeah, no, that was very formative. Except for, of course, except for, of course, the classic Behind Enemy Lines where the bad guy is Nico Bellic from GTA 4. That's not, I'm not even joking about that. That's I just wanted to mention that because I always find it interesting that they literally modeled the main character of their multi-billion dollar action game after a guy in a tracksuit who fights Owen Wilson in a movie. That's always been funny to me. Like, why did you do that, Rockstar? It worked. <laughs> no, it did work. Weird, weird company. And I, and uh, part of you know the whole uh, nuclear arms race that was the Cold War is that it basically took direct battle between, say, the U.S. and uh, the uh, USSR off the table. You're not going to have a World War II scenario again because at a certain point, it's just going to escalate to the point of mutually assured destruction, which is a big theme that, you know, during Peace Walker and, you know, Snake Eater, because those are actually set during those times. Um, and what would happen is that instead, uh, these big imperial states would fight through proxy wars, which again, Peace Walker will do. Uh, and we'll see a little bit also in like Metal Gear Solid 4. But, you know, we know from our and five. Yeah, and five. Uh, in, in our real world, we know that uh, when, you know, kind of big scale war was off the table, then Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa and the Pacific, you know, islands, those became major centers for uh, proxy wars between the U.S. and USSR, um, especially the U.S. not wanting socialism of any kind to spread anywhere, uh, especially in, you know, key locations that may affect, you know, U.S. companies and stuff like that. So um, yeah, locations that have that had a lot of natural resources. That's the way you say it. Yeah, <laughs> flashing back, flashing back to uh, Pete Buttigieg doing an interview while he's got a, a a mineral resource map of Afghanistan behind him, which is the most like craven shit I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Revengeance, also to to bring Revengeance up, uh, is it tangentially related to that because the main plot of the game's villain is to basically recreate nine eleven, so it gives the gives the U.S. military more uh, like carte blanche to basically actively engage in warfare across the world and like drive up the war economy. Yeah, so that's that's what that game's about. Well, kind of. (laughs) I can't wait to figure it out. And we're actually like, nukes are not necessarily in the news per se, but guess what? Uh, Apparently, Iran's not complying with some nuclear deal because that's what America does. They bring up nukes when it allows them to posture against states that don't align with what they want in terms of everyone kind of bowing down to us. So that's really the only time you hear about nukes anymore, really, is if Iran or North Korea or, you know, something like that is in the cards where a state that is considered an enemy. But it's usually only just to posture for sanctions or some kind of, you know, indirect or direct military action. Well, it's it's always framed in in our media, too, as as though the America, uh, as though we don't have nukes. Like, I can't believe they would make nukes. We don't have any of those. As though, like, North Korea getting one nuke would somehow put them on an even footing with our country and not, like, it's just, yeah, it's, 
these countries are, are trying to create nukes so they can protect themselves from America. <laughs> That's what's going on. Like, because if they're able to have a working nuclear program, any kind of ground assault, or or I guess at this point it would be more of a drone assault, would be less likely to happen. So like an, an American back coups would be less likely to happen. So that that's what that's us about. Like it's just we're mad at them because they don't align with our business interests. So we make up some sort of we we try to fear mongering. It's fear mongering. Yeah, I don't want to get. I mean. Again, it sounds like I'm kind of like just yelling my politics, but I think this is also the game's politics in a very real way. Yeah, and it's one of the things that that I think really drew both of us to this series is is they have. That's really one of the things that's really unique about Metal Gear is it's it's a series. It's a contemporary. It's a series set in you know in some version of our world that has something actually interesting and constructive to say about contemporary politics, and that's like. Most of the time, you get that stuff in sci-fi. Like, I think Mass Effect has at least some vague uh, concepts of of like it's like it's stuff they they took from Star Trek, but like that's fine. But like Mass Effect's not set in our world at this time, and like even Near Automata is a is a game that I, I think is very politically astute and and philosophically astute. But that's set in the year like 145,000 or some shit it's it's some like ridiculous far off you know it's not now so that's really that to me that's really fascinating and i think that's one of the things that pulled me into metal gear really really strongly at the exact right age yeah i think at some level there's a level of fantasy um that allows it to function as parables so you're able to do that with those other games i think what's unique about metal gear is that it wraps itself in almost the exact opposite message you would you know look at the aesthetics of it and if you look at some of the marketing and american commercials for it you would think this is another military shooter game um it's usually just like a drill sergeant yelling at a gamer to do something yeah they're pretty wild but they're not they wouldn't be pitched as thoughtful reflections on on, uh, you know, military culture or hyper-militarization or anything like that. And I think one of the ways that Metal Gear Solid, this game specifically, feels kind of most, like, refined and focused on nukes is the fact that the Metal Gear battle, even though it's not one of the game's better battles, like, Metal Gear Rex still feels like the big bad of this game in a way that I don't think you really ever feel in any of the other games again. And because that is the nuclear tank, um, it does center that nuclear bomb theme a little more. Uh, nukes are a big part of the rest of the series for sure going forward, but it tends to be a, a part of a much bigger story where it definitely feels more centered in this game. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, that stuff, it's hard to talk about too much more of this without just circling back on ourselves for this game. But it, it is, I, like people said, it, it will be in two, it will be in three, it's in four. It's one of the few truly coherent things about four. <laughs> it's in it's in Peace Walker a lot. It's in, I mean, I would say Revenge is a little less, but that's just because that game's more faster paced. It doesn't have, it's not as, con, con, not as contemplative is the word I was looking for. And then like V, of course, like it's all over V. But, uh, yeah, that's interesting, and I I want to move on here to just briefly. You have torture written here, and I think what's interesting. I think what we both agree with about the torture in this game is that it's it comes before you know this is before torture was like a big a uh, a manufactured talking point in American politics. Which is by that I mean it's one of the signs of the Overton window shifting, mm-hmm. where instead of uh, instead of us like debating the ethical merits of torture, which I think would be like the starting point for a rational society. It really moved on to like, Oh, it does it work. Yeah. It's like, as a, as a somehow like 
A, it doesn't work. But B, if it did, that would make it okay. And that that would mean like, well, we're stopping America's enemies by torturing them. By by torturing this random civilian we pulled off the street, and then we're gonna hold them in Guantanamo Bay for thirty five years or whatever, like that stuff. But like, yeah, that it's interesting that that's even brought up like as a real plot point, mm-hmm. like the ethical ramifications of torturing people, and how I do think it's funny. It's a little bit of a uh, a Wind Duffy situation with with Ocelot, where <laughs> he's he everyone is like he's so sadistic, he's so brutal, and then like two games later, you're like, I love Ocelot, he's the best character. <laughs> which is true he is yeah. the best character yeah no predating the discourse and you mentioned 24 earlier i feel like in terms yeah. of media like in terms of cultural media not news media that was the thing that brought torture and usually it was effective to some capacity and even now whether you follow it through to homeland or whatever the latest like jack ryan is on you know amazon i'm sure they all are doing torture scenes to some extent uh and you know this that's all mostly in reaction to uh, the torture debate that you know, was manufactured after the war on terror, um, whereas this was kind of speaking to it before. And I don't and the ocelot here is not really torturing you for information. You know, he's really just sadistic and kind of doing it that, you know, will be backstory we get on him later. But I just thought it was worth highlighting because it's not again, not only that they have torture and talk about torture, but it actually part of the story pivots on it, whether Meryl lives or dies. Yes. And it's whether you submit to the pain or not. It's not about whether you like tell the truth or give useful information or anything. I do. Th- I think it's interesting. You said submit to the pain because that's the reason I never beat this because it hurts your hand. And I think that was deliberate. Mm-hmm. If it was, if it was, if it was skill based, I think a lot more people would have, would have done, would have been able to get through it. But it's, it's just like, can you keep it in this button even though your hand's going to hurt? So it's like, it makes it causes you discomfort to do, which I think is interesting. But I want to, uh, real quick, I, I think it's interesting that just talking about all those, uh, they weren't contemporary, but, you know, soon to come, like Homeland, all the all the U.S. military shows. It's interesting that's the only genre where torture is seen as anything other than, like, a horrid thing that the villains do. Like, you'll get in some fantasy stuff, you'll get torture sometimes, and it's always, like, like uh, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Star Wars Central Republic, where Darth Malak tortures people solely because he's evil. U.S. military shows are the only places where, like, the protagonists torture people, yeah. and they have to do it. It's necessary to preserve the Republic, which I think that's a that really points to how uh, more like just completely bereft of any any ethical considerations the torture debate was in this country. Yeah, uh, Game of Thrones is another one. Yeah, uh, granted, it was you know the showrunners are American, but because it's using source material that's a little more thoughtful, uh, all the torture is like horrific and always. Uh, a sign of, de- you know, meaningless m- yeah. moral decay and, you know, societal decay when that's allowed or being able to be openly flaunted, like, say, the Boltons uh, who would just flay and leave corpses out, you know, in the courtyard. Uh, you know, it reflects a certain societal decay, which, again, we're not debating whether torture is ethical. We're debating, does it work? Uh, you know, so we've already we're presuming the ethicality or we're uh what's it called agnostic to it we don't care yeah which is already uh, that feels like we lost already i mean that seems like a yeah I, that seems like a uh almost union like yeah like the, we've given up by that point like if that's even the, the conversation then then there's no point in having a conversation it's just another really bright happy episode we're having here but another example <laughs> of fallen empire really yeah and uh you know 
It's also, uh, we've talked about this before, but the revolution of military affairs and things right at this time at the late 90s were really changing because we talked already about how the first Iraq war with Desert Storm and Desert Shield, uh, America was able to control the narrative by, by the way that they you know strategically had CNN or whoever along with them. Uh, it was not like a Wild West scenario where, you know, Vietnam and all this, you know, horrific stuff was coming out through the mass media. And, you know, now war was far more digital than it was in any war previous. Uh, that's why there's so much like high technology in these Metal Gear games, because it's technology and um, what's it called? Warfare. They've always gone hand in hand, uh, you know, basically to the detriment of society. Um, that's how nukes came to be. Uh, you know, that's probably how the longbow came to be. That's how know? most most real technological advancements came to be. I would say with the exception of like the plane. Because I, I think that famously, I mean, a lot of like advancements in aer- aeros, aer- aeronautic engineering, obviously, but like just the, the concept of the plane was not right. developed as like a military tool, but like basically everything else, radio. Including the Sony PlayStation. Yes. Like that technology exists because of both military funding and probably because a military version of that computer processing system existed prior yep. to um, the civilian model as uh terminology snake would use and just some other things that this game kind of dips into is uh like psychotherapy and gene therapy um you know because we'll talk about genetics here in a minute but you know we had just you know mapped the human genome so ways to enhance soldiers that way and also vr and video games like the thing you're actually engaging with this content in uh, metal gear solid is a video game and we you know we just spent 20 minutes talking about all these other video games that are basically war simulators and, you know, unquestioning war simulators. Jumping ahead again, but as Ryden would say, indistinguishable from the real thing. So that's like just, that's really honestly even just a sampling of some of the military themes that this game touches on. Uh, But uh, we should move on and we should talk a little bit about genetics and gene. Um, I'm going to try to avoid talking about Richard Dawkins too much here, but... That's for two. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Kojima famously kind of organizes his games around the uh, like a word. Um, and it might be a little bit overwrought, but the first game was kind of organized around the concept of gene as in the genes that, you know, we pass on, uh, you know, to our, you know, progeny or what have you. And surprisingly, through almost like six or seven hours of recording about Metal Gear Solid, uh, neither Brian or I have mentioned the word nanomachines, uh, which are basically just things that kind of were injected into snake and kind of bonded with his genes. DNA is in his blood is not entirely sure. It allows him to have radio contact with, you know, his team, uh, but it also prevents him from raising his gun, uh, you know, in the nuclear bond. So he couldn't like accidentally shoot a bullet and, you know, rupture nuclear material. Um, It's really weird. They use nanomachines, I'd say fairly effectively here, and then they go way overboard with it in Metal Gear Solid Four. <laughs> they're just a plot device at that point. They're 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 plot magic. Whatever whatever they want the plot to do, they could just do with nan- nano machines. And that, yeah, yeah. And if you think about a lot of these games being about control and you know who's actually in control, whether it's the Patriots or whatnot, nano machines are a way that the game and this universe, this fictional universe, can uh, you know enforce control at a genetic or, you know, biological level. That's what the Sons of the Patriot system is in Metal Gear Solid 4. Uh, So, um, you know, we're going to see the theme again of like the powers that be, the power brokers, whether they're the Patriots or philosophers or the American CIA. uh, They're looking for ways of control. And 
Uh, the kind of the one thing we hadn't talked about in our extensive discussions on genetics in the previous episodes is that they're kind of using nanomachines as a way to, uh, you know, enforce this, so to speak. Yeah. I also think there's something interesting about genes in that I think, honestly, I've always thought that the genesis of that idea was him realizing that this game was like a carbon copy of Metal Gear 2. I feel like that's sort of the, where it comes from, like the concept of, of things being repeated. I wouldn't even be that surprised if that's where he got the idea for clones from. Oh. Because he seems to, Kojima, when he maps these games out, seems to have a lot of like associative stuff. Like he, he just kind of stream of consciousness puts it together and then just sort of figures out later like what it actually means. Yeah. Because I think he's talked before about he, he would have like, the, he would do the main story, he would write it all like the, the concept out and then he would go back and figure out what it meant afterwards, which is sort of the opposite of how like TV is written, mm-hmm. which is why I think it's one of the reasons I think Metagur has such a dreamlike is overused Lynchian. That's not overused. Uh, no, but like <laughs> has, has sort of like a ethereal. Well, I mean, you can see that best. The uh, Yoji Shinkawa's art is all wispy and, and tenuous and like hard to really say exactly what it is just by looking at it. And I feel like that comes from, stream of consciousness writing and that's i feel like that's how he writes but anyways continue i just i just thought of that i think that was an interesting idea yeah no i I actually love that uh that metal gear 2 was kind of like you know its descendant is metal gear solid in terms of a lot of the same dna is there yeah and i do think um i've watched a couple interviews recently of him talking about metal gear solid after the release um of metal gear solid in 1998 and he talks about genetics in kind of a more abstract way in those interviews he's really talking about what we pass down to the next generation and it's not just our genes and dna but that's also where the concept of nukes comes in what what yeah. are we passing down to the next generation in terms of the world we're leaving them in uh the war we're living them in climate change will become a bigger theme in later games but again that's also what are we leaving the next generation of people um, and that'll be really, really discussed in Metal Gear Solid 2 because the very specific idea of that as memes is the centerpiece of that game. So um, we'll put a, you know, kind of a pin on that. But we are going to talk, we're talking about, you know, what we pass down to the next generation. And that kind of is at the core of some of the conflict, especially of later Metal Gear Solid games, is that we feel like we're always fighting against the times or the zeitgeist or, you know, the powers that be for any given time. Uh, Cause you know, you're usually fighting whether it's the philosophers or the Patriots Patriots. It's always framed as fighting the times. The boss talks about it in metal gear solid three. Um, and we you talk about it, especially in metal gear solid five. It basically ends uh, with big boss saying we're fighting the times we're fighting the status quo um, by establishing our nation without, or our army without borders and all that stuff. So um, it's really interesting. And this is a theme again, that I said is explicit in later games, but we can kind of see that here with how much is truly out of control of our, you know, protagonist. We talked, uh, you know, extensively about that. So, and uh, you know, you talk about the times and, this game was in a very specific time, the late 1990s. Um, I'm to cite a liberal hack here, but uh, this period of time was labeled by F- Francis Fukuyama as the end of history, which was basically saying the Cold War was over. We're not going to see large scale war again. Western liberal democracy has won. Uh, you know, people thought that, like, you know, things were kind of just going to be this way. And like technology would just make life better um, in the late nineties. That's where movies like American beauty come 
from where it's just like, oh, the monotony of having a nine to five well-paying job and a big house in the suburbs, this sucks. It, yeah, it's the, uh, uh, there's a phrase for it. And I can't remember what it is now. I'm going to remember later and get upset for myself. But yeah, that, the idea that, that the only thing you have to worry about is is boredom. That's sort of the, the liberal, like the, the 20th century liberalism. That's sort of like the, that's that was the, the end state. That was the end goal. That was what they wanted to get to. And they did. And nothing got better. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's why I think, you know, some of the very hyper American imagery like Ocelot and his gun, you know, that's like the West winning, you know, how the West was won. It was oh, it literally is the Colt is the gun that won the West. That's what it's called. Yeah. yeah. So um, it, it very much felt like we were settling in and now we would just kick up our feet. Um, you know, the end of the post-World War II conflicts was kind of over the Cold War, Vietnam. Uh, you know, we're fucking around in Iraq a little bit, but, you know, things are pretty much on easy street. Uh, you know, the Clinton years were kind of dominated by domestic policy discussions mm-hmm. more so than uh, international policy discussions, even though there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, so we don't want to lose sight of that. And, you know, some of our, you know, thoughts and medias turned to the skies and the unknown, uh, something I think you wanted to talk about a little bit. Yeah, explicitly. I don't know if Kojima has watched the X-Files, but he certainly taps into the same kind of, because, I mean, the X-Files is sort of, in my mind, has always been the incarnation of that very, like, 94 to 2001 style, like, where, this is going to be kind of convoluted, where, where conspiracy theories went, because Kennedy kind of lost, like, aside from that Oliver Stone movie, kind of lost the lure. A lot of the actual, like, COINTELPRO and MKUltra stuff mm-hmm. was kind of revealed. Vietnam had been over long enough. So most conspiracy stuff went to just, like, aliens, but also specifically just, like, Majestic 12 and, like, the Illuminati and, like, all this sort of pie-in-the-sky, like, fan- almost fantasy stuff where, like, they became like Deus Ex is a great example. That's that's a game. The premise of that game is what if every conspiracy theory is true? And mm-hmm. the last time you could possibly have that as like a joke or like a lighthearted sort of X. I mean, X Files is not lighthearted, but X Files is kind of silly. Mm-hmm. And like you could not like it's it's kind of incredible looking back that you could have a show like that or a game like like this. I'm not saying the Middle Gear is lighthearted, but I think that stuff like the 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 way that they handle like the the Black Ops stuff is sort of like it's supposed to be like a cool under like secret thing and not like existentially terrifying, which is what it really is. And I feel like it's kind of fascinating that you can look back and that stuff could only exist right up until September 10th, 2001. And like, then it's just gone from the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And I think tonally that's just, it's something that's just completely gone. And it's really fascinating because this is one of the, uh, sort of, I mean, like literally, I, I know I, I'm actually pretty sure he has watched the X Files. I'm jumping to Metal Gear Solid Two because in the X Files, Mulder's first contact, his first guy in the government who's fe- he's feeding him information, is Deep Throat, and the second one is called Mister X. And okay. what are the two cyborg ninjas called in these two games? Deep Throat and Mister X. I know that Deep Throat is a reference to Deep Throat, but like Mister X is explicitly from the X Files, mm-hmm. and that would have come out in uh, I think that would have been like '97 that season, '96. So yeah, I feel like that is an explicit reference, and I'll bring that up more in, in Metal Gear Solid 2 because it's kind of Mr. X is a dick. <laughs> uh, Deep Throat's like a cool guy who helps Mulder and gets killed. 
And then Mr. X shows up and he just, they have this antagonistic relationship through the whole series, which is very, very good. I don't know if you've seen Supernatural. Uh, Supernatural. It's the other guy. It's uh, Stephen Williams is the actor. He's uh, just, he's very good at just being like curmudgeonly mentor guy. And he's, it's a great, it's one of my favorite uh, relationships in that show because almost all their scenes end with them pointing guns at each other. Like, fuck you, fuck you. And then they just like, all right, I'll see you later. And they just leave. It sounds very like snake and ass a lot. A little bit. Yeah. But like, um, uh, Mr. X is a terrific character. He's not talked about enough. With he never came back for the new stuff, which sucks because he's a great character. Yeah, and I think with I think uh, Kojima's taking a lot from like the culture he's consuming at that time. Yeah. We've talked about a lot yeah. of the news items, but you know, X Files, uh, Die Hard, The Rock is literally two years before this. Yep. Uh, the Matrix releases right around this time. Uh, I think L.A. Confidential. That'll be a big influence on Metal Gear Solid Two specifically, but hilariously, hil- hilariously, apparently Austin Powers was something he was influenced oh, yeah, by. Hey. <laughs> Not sure how. I mean, he loves James Bond. So. Yeah, that would make sense. Thankfully, he had a lot. He had a lot of really good James Bond movies coming out to to take a lot of influence from. Right. Yeah, Goldeneye. Goldeneye is the shit. <laughs> Goldeneye um, is very good. Toronto Never Dies is fine. And then there, that's it. The, the Pierce Brosnan never made any other movies, right? <laughs> oh, man. I really wanted to like The World Is Not Enough because I like Sophie Marceau from Braveheart. I don't like this. I have, I, have I have an affection for that movie because it used to be on TV all the time. So I've probably seen it like 10 times, but it's not good. It's not good at all. What I will say is I think that's where they kind of realize is like, oh, we we can use Judy Dench a little more yeah, than that's you know we have been using Adam. I think that's where they get the idea um, to use her a little more when we get to the da- Daniel Craig era. But uh, we'll get to the James Bond series one by one later. We should do a special Bond episode, yeah, where we just talk about Bond movies. Um, I think we absolutely should. Um, it doesn't even have to tie to Metal Gear. You know I'm down. Um, and we've talked already so much about like political themes at the time. We've talked about nuclear disarmament and the mapping of the human genome. But this was also a time where you were seeing more um, LGBTQIA characters on TV. I mean, to be that, fair, in the late any, 90s, yeah. it was mostly straight white men, uh, maybe very attractive uh, lesbian women. Well, when, when did Will and Grace come out? I mean, that show sucks, but... It's like 1999. Yeah, so, that, I mean, it, it was starting to happen some. You went from nothing to something, which I think is at least worth noting. Yeah, well, I mean, just law of physics, it's harder to get a, something that's not in motion into motion, yeah. and then once it's in motion... It, yeah tends to move and that's not to say that's not to say we're in some golden age of representation now like it's still no no not at all but it and, but yeah uh we did we have kind of mentioned it that there is um overt you know kind of homosexual or homoerotic tones i don't want to say homosexual tones because i think pretty much all these characters are canonically in this game i think so yeah in this game they are but like and that was the standard is that if you have a big militaristic action style story that all the men would be hyper masculine and you know they do play on that a little bit we talked about with sam how um it seems like all the women you know want to sleep with solid snake solid snake i think just kind of half-heartedly goes through the motions of his pickup lines at times but he does go through those motions um but you also see that you know hal is portrayed in a you know not as a super masculine character but he's still um you know a character that we come to love. He's more effeminate, but he is consistently portrayed as like an, an aspirational character. It's like a good person who's trying to do good. Yeah. Without being like a super hardcore tough guy who takes his shirt off. But even then, like the taking your shirt off. And, and I, I talked about that with Yakuza a little bit. I think that is also just like culturally a Japanese thing. Like 
the ultimate test of manhood, man, like mano a mano. And that, that, that happens in, in American culture some too, but also just as often in America, I'm thinking of Die Hard specifically, just as often in, in U.S. films, he just shoots the bad guy. Like in a way, and, and that's mm-hmm. just, he moves on with his day. Whereas in Japan, like you have to take your shirt off and battle the bad guy. And like, I don't think that's meant to be homoerotic, but it is homoerotic. So yeah, you can't ignore it. No, yeah, uh, the text is there. Uh, so I, I think I think it's great. And it's also not just, you know, the characters' depictions, but their relationships to each other. And, yeah. you know, ha- Hal and uh, Snake, you know, develop this great bond over the series of the game. They talk about feelings, like, <laughs> several times during the course of the game. Uh, they ride off into the sunset together, at least in our endings. And, like... Yeah, like, no, that's, that's important. We talked about that, that uh, you get, like, you literally, if you aren't good enough at the game, you... you instead of riding off with the girl, you you literally ride off with Otacon in the sunset. Like that's, yeah. that's the, that's the implication is that that's, that's your hurt. Like it's, I don't think it's deliberate, but it, again, that is the text. It exists. And I think that's, uh, at the very least worth mentioning. I think it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I wanted to make sure we got that in. Cause I, I think that's really fun. I, I kind of enjoy that a lot, but like, I love it too. <laughs> like it's the, the punishment. If you're not good at this game, you become gay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's not a punishment for us. <laughs> Listen, I'm I'm straight, but I, I'm I'm not going to pretend like I can't ship those two guys. Oh yeah, definitely a better fit than Meryl. <laughs> for sure. So I think it's interesting that tonally, the, this game accomplishes something that none of the other games do, and maybe part of it is because it kind of there's enough of the. Uh, I don't want to say he took from Resident Evil because Resident Evil had just come out, but it's enough of that style of sort of atmospheric, like ambient horror where there's nothing really explicitly frightening going on except from Psycho Mantis, but just the tone of the game is kind of oppressive. And like just the noises that happen are just like, it's hard. It, it's a place that would be hard to really like focus in and like understand what's going on. And I think that really starts aside from two, two does this also, but um, it's the the weird thing about this game is that it starts off as like a generic, straightforward military game where everyone uses the military acronyms and you have the you have your objective to get the terrorists, and then suddenly Psycho Manus shows up, and instead of the game's tone changing, everyone just kind of takes that. It's like yes, that guy, there's there's the the powerful telepath, and like no one thinks it's weird. Everyone just kind of moves on with it, and it, the the game still keeps this like dark serious tone and like more and more weird shit keeps happening like that. And it continues on and it's almost like a, it it feels like a nightmare does where like it's, it's suddenly there's all this psychic weird shit going on there's ninjas and there's cyborgs and like the game is still treating it like it's like you're on seal team six and you're trying to, you know, uh, you're trying to get a hold of the asset to achieve victory for your team. And it's really, really weird. It's just really frightening is too strong a word, but it's really disconcerting to have like this game that was pretending you could believe the game was in the real world and until suddenly you couldn't. And the game did not let you recover from that. And uh, I think that the best way to, and the best way to really hammer that home is that if you think about it, in the fiction of the game universe, it is never explained how Solid Snake defeats Psychomanus. It is not at any point does it ever make sense as to how he did that. The only way it makes sense is that you yourself 
switch the controller port. And that's like frightening. Like that shouldn't, like, that's just, it's confusing more than frightening, I guess is the word I'm looking for. And it never really makes sense. And nothing that really goes on from that point on, you're just confused kind of the whole time. You never feel like you know what's going on and you never really feel like anyone's being truthful with you. And it's just this, maybe that's sort of an X-Files thing too, where everything, nothing makes sense. Like the X-Files famously, the more they explained the, the actual like lore, the less interesting it became. Metal Gear Solid 4. Yeah, yeah, and but that, but that, that's that whole thing that I, I mentioned with the Yogi, Yogi Shinkama art earlier. That everything is just sort of confusing, and nothing when you look at it, it doesn't make sense. And that happens in two, obviously. But I think, I think it really has this. It's more like cold and mechanical and industrial in one, and it's just disconcerting is the right tone. And I don't think that was entirely because that's a, that's a famous thing. Like a lot of 3D games from that era have that kind of. Like kind of, if you really just like sit and listen, the Source Engine of the Half-Life games are on. It's just famous for that. It feels weird. Uh, Mario sixty four has like a weird ambience to it. If you ever in like a, a spot, but I don't think I think that was deliberate with this game. I think it's supposed to be just consistently unnerving. Yeah, and like you know what I'm talking about. Like with the the like, if you just stop and listen, it's just like it's supposed to be the wind going through, but it just sounds terrifying. Like it, it you would not want to be there. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm going to make the most obvious film comparison to this. Kiki's Delivery Service. <laughs> uh, and I was just, it's not obviously anywhere near in terms of tone or story, but it's it's reminded me of that just softest touch of world building. Apparently every town has a witch and no one really questions it. It's just accepted and everyone moves on with their otherwise very ordinary lives. So yep. that's kind of what I got from Mantis in terms of like, that mysticism or supernaturalness was just the slightest touch. It was very Miyazaki to me. But when you start talking about oppressive tone, what I really started thinking about was The Thing, which is one of Kojima's favorite movies and is, is in a setting that's pretty much Shadow Moses, uh, cold and dark and all that. But I mean, there are obviously these big, you know, horrific horror moments in there. But so much of that movie is just about mood and how you feel when you're in a room and who do you trust that's right next to you. Um, when I think of oppressive moods in like a good storytelling way, the thing, which is again, Kojima's one of his favorite movies is one of the first that comes to mind. Yeah. And it's totally even a lot of like blue light. And yeah, uh, of course I would be remiss to not say that, uh, the X-Files did a thing episode that was very good. Xander Berkeley's in it. Nice. Um, it's like the eighth episode of the show. I think it's very early, but, uh, similarly kind of that same kind of like cold steel, and just like wind whipping everywhere, and that just like un- inhospitable. It, it seems it, it feels like a place that people should not be. I think is what I was getting at with everything in Shadow Moses, pretty much. I, I really, I really I appreciate that more and more as time goes on because it's really hard tone to get, and I think Metal Gear Solid nails it completely. Right. And speaking of nails and heads and repeatedly beating dead horses. Uh, I want to wrap up a little bit with just reinforcing what I've been saying ad nauseum every episode prior to this and will keep saying every episode forward to this is that I really view Metal Gear Solid's core theme and thrust 
to be challenging video games as a power fantasy. Um, I do think Kojima is actively engaging with the medium that he's telling his stories through. And it is something I do think he refines in future games. I think we're going to dive so deep into this with Metal Gear Solid 2. But these games constantly confront you with your violence. They put you, the player, not Solid Snake, um, as the actual perpetrator of the violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that... They do all that while at the same time, the big victory of uh, Snake, you know, defeating Liquid and stopping the Shadow Moses insurrection, that kind of goes to Fox Die. And that doesn't to take away from uh, Snake's legitimate heroic moments, but it's really baked into the game that uh, the ultimate win in the end was not Snake the player, but kind of this lie that Snake was fed or this this unwilling vector that he was for Fox Die. Uh, and all that. So, and, you know, we've talked about the military industrial complex and genetics and the times. These are just big, powerful forces in society, in our lives. So when you're fighting against them, you're, you're generally, it's a losing battle because you're fighting uphill um, and you're trying to fight for control, but you never really have it. And this game very clearly makes it out that violence does not equal control the fact that you can kill or that you get more guns or that you know you can shoot a rocket and take down a helicopter none of that literally puts you in more control than it was and i think that's again feeds into the pacifist themes of metal gear solid and you know from some storytelling beats you don't really get the girl that's such a core part of especially um 80s and 90s uh, Hollywood storytelling is that your very overtly a manly heroic character will get the extremely attractive lady in the end. And, you know, it's very, um, you know, key that Meryl is there, but her and Snake are not romantically involved, but they still have Snake realize the beauty of Meryl as a person and her humanity. And that's kind of his gateway into being more human himself. And I think that's kind of cool because not it's not really denying, it's giving Snake another avenue and not just using a woman character as a sexual piece or a reward or an object to be attained in the story. And at the end, you want, you want, you want to save Meryl because you like Meryl. You don't want it to be like, this will... I mean, Liquid kind of frames it like that, which I think is interesting. Liquid's sort of like, here's the girl, you can save her if you want. But I think like Snake wants to save her because he likes her and because she he knows that she's important to his friend, which I think is is much more like for all the the rightful criticism he gets. I think that's a much that's a reasonably mature and, and like healthy way to to view his female characters. It's his female character in this sense, I guess Sniper Wolf too. That yeah, she's more of a boss than like a character. I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what I mean by that. But Meryl is like a central character. I, I, absolutely, and I, I totally get that. I love Sniper Wolf, but like Sniper Wolf is a, is is a, is a piece of flavor in the in the in the narrative, the same way that Raven is, the same way that Mantis is, and not like a actualized like character who changes the narrative of the story in the way that Meryl does. Yeah, no, and I think Metal Gear is good because we've told you like, oh, you don't beat Liquid Snake and all that, but you do have these existential like victories. They might not mean anything or be put in the mission debriefing, but like, you know, fighting for humanity again or saving someone, those are the little things. It's these, uh, there's this great moment in the A Song of Ice and Fire books where Brienne of Tarth says, no chance, no choice. Um, even if you're going to lose or things are going to go badly, you fight because it's the right thing to do. And I think we see Snake go through that multiple times. And I think 
you know, Otacon does that as well. He has an easy out during, uh, you know, after Sniper Wolf dies, he has plenty of time to get clear of Shadow Moza, but he's he's in it, you know. His 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 choice there to say I'm going to fight this through the end, see it through. Uh, it's like those are the victories I take away because, as we said, you know, the ending's kind of bittersweet. You know, um, you're denied some of this stuff. You know, you were kind of a pawn in this whole thing. Everyone that you kind of wanted to survive did end up surviving. You know, Rip Gray Fox, I guess, but <laughs> otherwise, uh, like the game kind of ends on a bittersweet note, but it's also a call to arms of sorts. Um, you know, Snake feels reinvigorated. Um, he's, he feels like he has a purpose. He's like, I know I have to keep fighting this Metal Gear thing. Uh, the game with the whole message about nukes at the end is kind of a call to arms to be like, don't forget this. And a Snake will say this explicitly in the next game, but it's about, you're still fighting for the future. You're fighting for what you're going to pass down to people. Um, even if you're never in control of it, fighting for that is never wrong. Uh, I mean, you can fight in the wrong way, but, you know, fighting for future is a good thing. And I think that's a big part of why, you know, this the title of the song that the game ends on is The Best Is Yet To Come. It's a song that's forward looking and looking to the future and not being oppressed by the past, so to speak. I, I do want to mention something about that song in the future, specifically when we get to Snake Eater. I'm going to say it now so I can kind of remember it. I wonder how much of the because that song, I don't speak Gaelic. I don't really know much of it. And that's why it sounds so beautiful and mysterious. Whereas snake eater is kind of corny, mm-hmm. but also beautiful. I, but, but the important thing to remember is that the vast majority of people who worked on these games do not also, also don't speak English. So I'm wondering if snake eater sounds beautiful and mysterious to them instead of like kind of silly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I love snake. I love that song, but like, I, I wonder if that sounds more like a exotic kind of cool interesting song that they don't that doesn't really like smack you in the face with its dumb lyrics that again that i love yeah no i think that totally makes sense i mean you how good can a song be if the lyrics are about eating tree frogs but um i can i actually love snake eater (laughs) turns out it could be the best song you've ever heard in your life it it literally is and uh you know we've been talking about random episodes we might do here and there i think a game just about the original songs or generally the songs in metal gear solid would be a lot of fun because um all of them like i would say maybe metal gear solid 2 has my least favorite of the ending songs but it's actually still a beautiful great jazz yeah it's it's a good song yeah yeah they're all great i honestly think that song had i don't think any song would have a chance with how that game ends like it's just too overwhelming like (laughs) Yeah, it, that's one of the games that could have ended on silence and it would have uh, fit like one of those TV episodes that cuts to black with no score over the credits. Uh, Red Wedding style, so to speak. <laughs> Naomi, Liquid died from Fox Die too. What about me? When am I going to go? That's up to you. What do you mean? Everybody dies when their time is up. Yeah, so when's mine up? It's up to you how you use the time left to you. Live, Snake. It's all I can say to you. Uh, That's Mission Complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieras at gmail.com, and we're podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Uh, I've been 
Brian, also known as Cosmos. We all have an expiration date. No one lives forever. That's a Metal Gear Solid 2 quote. It's coming up. <laughs> Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Like, review, subscribe on your favorite podcast application. And for the last time, remember, the best is yet to come. And good, killing recording.